Hello and welcome to Technicolor Jesus, a podcast where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. In today's episode, Matt and I take a bath with a river spirit. Today we talk about Hio Miyazaki's wonderful film, Spirited Away. I'm Adam and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. Hey, and I'm Matt, and I am the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that are supposed to be relevant to our work as ministers. Last time we were together, Matt decided we had to go and watch Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away. So that's what we've done. So in our first segment today, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Matt to defend his pick. Why does this movie, Spirited Away, matter for the work of the church? In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Spirited Away for the lectionary week ahead, which will be Year C, April 10th, the third Sunday of the Easter season. And then finally, we'll offer up some postludes, just little theological thoughts from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. So Matt... Before there was Pixar, before Woody and Buzz and Nemo and Wally, there was Hayao Miyazaki. John Lasseter, the chief creative officer at Pixar, was Spirited Away's earliest U.S. champion and encouraged Disney to purchase the American distribution. Lasseter is an unashamed fanboy of Miyazaki and in a recent interview said that when his creative team gets stuck, they retreat to the screening room and they put on Spirited Away or Howl's Moving Castle, or Princess Mononoke, and within a few scenes, they have found a solution to their problem. Miyazaki is like the animator's Rosetta Stone. He is a prodigious creative filmmaking brain, and if there is such a thing as an auteur in filmmaking, Miyazaki is one. He oversees all parts of the filmmaking process. He storyboards the entire movie. He writes it as they film So when we approach a movie like Spirited Away, I think it's among the closest thing we get to a complete vision of a single filmmaker. The thing is, the work of Miyazaki is his own and therefore is not immediately accessible to everyone else. It's dense, it's complex, it's born of Japan, and so some of the references and experiences are totally foreign to my own American eyes. And yet, when I watch it, my interests never wane, even when I have little idea what's going on. A bathhouse for spirits, poor signed parents, malevolent spirits, and a little girl, Chihiro, or Sen. So Matt, tell me, why Spirited Away? Justify your choice. So, Adam, last week, we talked about E.T., which is the story of Elliot a 10-year-old boy who has an encounter with the supernatural. And Elliot is from a broken family, and over the course of E.T., this encounter with the supernatural helps put the family back together. Sort of. But by the end of that movie, even though they mourn E.T. going home with his family, everything is going to be okay because Elliot's family has each other. Which, which, by the way, is also the plot of Ghostbusters. Yeah, and Chinatown and most Hollywood movies. Yeah, okay, fair enough. (laughs) This week, Spirited Away is the story of Chihiro, which is the story of a 10-year-old child's encounter with the supernatural. 
She's from her own kind of broken family, though she has both her parents. They have moved to a new town, and Shihiro is missing her best friend, and she doesn't want to go. The opening of the film is powerfully wistful, and her parents are trying to convince her that everything is going to be okay. But in this movie, everything isn't going to be okay. Chihiro has this encounter with the supernatural. She becomes trapped in this bathhouse for the spirits, as you put it. And by the time of the end of the film, even though she gets her parents back, the family doesn't really have each other anymore. She can't tell them what's happened. She's spent the whole movie trying to save them, but by the time we get back to them, she's, she's really almost grown past them. And if anything, the point of the movie seems to be that you grow up and everything's not okay, and that part of growing up in this movie is learning how to be sad. Mm. What she has now instead is the courage to go into this adulthood with who she has now become. And so, you know, at the risk of sounding a little dismissive, I kind of think Spirited Away is the movie that E.T. wants to be when it grows up. And, you know, part of that is the relationship between spirited away as a disney property and all of the kind of generic disney animated stuff spirited away comes off feeling so much more complex and mature right it, i mean it's almost as if chihiro is not elliot's natural antithesis or, or analog uh but et's like is this part two when et goes back to his homeland and he's had this wild experience on what happens then yeah sure right? but i i think you know, I was putting this in conversation with E.T., but as I was re-watching Spirited Away, the movie that most jumped to association for me is Pixar's, um, one of Pixar's latest, Inside Out. Right. Uh, where you have the girl who's about the same age who has to learn about sadness. And, has to, and she's going through her own transition, right? And she has to learn about the complexity of adult emotion. And I, I feel like, in some ways, those films are peas in a pod here. Uh, and I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I don't want to jump too far ahead into kind of our Bible churchy stuff, but in terms of getting this to be, why does it matter for the church? You know, it, in the middle of Easter season, sometimes we need a little bit of sadness. You know, the disciples have to grow up. They've, they've lost their friend. They have to be on their own. We read these resurrection appearances as these kind of sacred evidentiary moments. Like, look, he's really alive. Amen. Hallelujah. But the disciples are really lost and confused. And even when they get Jesus back, they know it's not going to be the same. Something is broken. And I think maybe our churches need a little bit of this too. You know, Easter doesn't put everything back together. In our church, it doesn't fill the chairs of folks who have gone away or folks who have died. And maybe at best it gives us this courage to kind of go into a new frontier of adulthood with who we have become in the transformation of Easter. Anyway, that's my pitch. Have yeah. I convinced you? Yeah, I think, well, I love this idea that um, that adult emotions are never so pure to be any one thing, right? And I think Spirited Away is giving you that picture. I think your, your reference to Inside Out, that's central to the movie, right? Is that um, happiness and sadness are not mutually exclusive things. And for our churches, especially during an Easter season, that's so valuable um, because our churches are kind of full on Easter, right? Right, sure. And it is valuable. And, it, and, and we can see that cynically as, you know, the Easter Christmas Christians who just show up um, on the high holy days, so to speak. Um, or we can see that as a great gift. 
that they've that they still come back here but we can't do that without also recognizing that it's sad that they're not going to be back for another you know nine months not on easter three yeah yeah yeah, they're not like they don't show up for pentecost man uh so i i like that idea that this is an adult movie and uh and it led me to think a lot about chihiro in this movie um and the adult traits that she has that you expect the adults to have but they don't have um and central of which is self-control so her parents turn into pigs in part because they're gluttonous people right they, they although admittedly the food that they're eating looks delicious it does look sure and, and there seems to be a lot it. of it yeah <laughs> but um this is a part of the, this theme runs throughout the movie where servants and adults and people who should know better um are at the mercy of their own appetites and over and over chihiro abstains she seems to have this like amazing self-control so she doesn't eat the food that her parents are eating she recognizes that um it's not hers then at one point um the spirit no face tries to hand her all sorts of bath tokens and she says i don't i don't need them i don't want them again no face tries to tempt her with gold because that's what everybody else wants and right. she says i i don't want that either and over and over again she she seems to have uh this this innate self-control to just take what she needs and it 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 led me to think a lot about um how do we celebrate self-control in the easter season right we're we're mm. supposed to um we're still we're supposed to embrace the freedom that comes with the resurrected Christ. And I get it. Like freedom for all. It is one of the great gifts of the church that after the lenten time of penitence, fasting, abstention, you get a moment of excess celebration and abundance. Uh we get to, you know, love God and do as you please. But I think the church has lost the true value of self-control. And I was reminded of that in Spirited Away that abstinence is not just a way to like punish our body or to prepare us to, you know, eat more at the celebration day is a matter of justice. It's uh, an attempt to preserve the true value of things. And this I think has been lost in our churches. Um, I think Easter season is an appropriate time to reassess what is valuable in this world. And using the resurrected Christ as the um, as the 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 central um, criteria for valuing um, what's around us and how we consume it, and certainly the Gospels and the early section of Acts give us really interesting ways in which the early church was meant to kind of reunderstand its assignments of value in the wake of. The resurrection and in the wake of the birth of the church. I mean, we always end up reading the um, the section from early Acts where the disciples are keeping all their possessions right. in common, and they have kind of injected Jerusalem with this alternate conception of value that I think may align a little bit with what you're talking about. It struck me as I was watching this film that, that this spirit bathhouse is really a kind of capitalist nightmare in some ways. Right. right. I mean, that you know, you have a you have this labor boss who is 
running the whole show and everything is oriented around profit and gold. You have uh, Chihiro is forced to sign a labor contract without having a job. She can't have value in the spirit world at all. I mean, that's the only way that she can be um, understood and safe and welcome, which in some ways is a nice commentary. I mean, presumably one of her parents has had to just take a job and that's why they have moved from town to town. And now she has to go through that experience as well. But it does seem to say like, look, this is one system of value that she is really trying to push against. And maybe that's part of, you know, what what we're called to do in this season too. Right. And, um, you know, I, I think about Paul and, and lifting up self-control as a fruit of the spirit. And it's never one that we like to talk about. That Whenever we name the fruits of the spirit, it's never one that sort of gets top billing. Uh, but in this movie, it kind of does. Um, it also seems to recognize that, um, that our appetites do affect us that what we consume does change us. It does make us. We are what we eat. And um, and therefore, all the more reason to, um, to have this sort of self-control and patience and faith to abstain and to not just too easily follow whatever our initial appetite is. And this is really a word for me, you know, like, I need to hear this as much as anybody as, um, as you know, I like what I like and I want to consume it, but there are times when it's, it's valuable to stop and reassess like what the life of this animal was that I'm about to eat Mm -hmm. and, um, where I, um, like who made this garment that I'm about to wear. I mean, those are, those are important things and questions to continue to ask especially as this capitalist system tries to remove the presence of a person or a thing that we do consume. And maybe for Chihiro, I mean, maybe that sense of self-control has a totally different kind of parallel for our churches. I think at least it does for mine, where we are constantly barraged by the, this, the kind of church brainstorming exercise yeah, right. of what what are all the things that we could do and what are all the what are all the missions we could engage in and what are all the membership strategies we could be undergoing and what are all the bells and whistles that our worship needs to have to be attractive and what are are we doing everything that we could possibly do and and I wonder if her restraint here is in some ways um you know, translated half a, half a dozen ways from Sunday ends up being for me a kind of gospel about the, the church's need to be able to say no itself and be able to understand what is within and what is outside of its immediate mission at any given moment. I mean, she Chihiro wants to save her parents. Basically, that is the orientative focus that guides all of her actions for a substantial part of the film until it kind of grows and changes a little bit and she has some more things involved but there's something like i i I don't need to do all these things i need to do this one thing right and it takes a sort of singular focus in order to do that and that one thing i mean the, the easter season is in some way saying like hey like the most important stuff has already been done you know 
it's all it's already done i i remember someone early in my own ministry saying like look adam these people already have a savior and that was important for me to hear which is like oh okay yeah my my job isn't to save people my job is to remain faithful and faithfulness requires work and it requires patience and love and generosity and kindness and self-control and yet at the same time i i you know i agree with all of that but i i don't want us to lose sight as we encounter this film of the way in which chihiro does grow and change over time right so you know it's it's if if she were just uh a practitioner of the noble virtue of self-control and successfully navigated the obstacles of the film and then it was over, that would be a little boring compared to the yeah. the dynamic change that she does go on. That's well said. And where where she at the end, you know, they're they're going off to the new house and she's going to the new school and she's able to say to her dad, Yeah, but but I can do this now. I mean, there's a sense of courage that arises in her and a sense of confidence that arises in her because of this encounter that she's had. And I, I, you know, as much, I want us to be focused and uh, diligent, but I also want us to emerge from this season with confidence and courage sure. that, that it's, yeah, the, the best part has already happened, but something is supposed to have changed in us too. Right. Right. Well said. All right, Adam, let's move on to preaching as if we haven't already. I know. This, this segment is called Preaching to the Choir, and so we're going to look at the specific lectionary passages for year C for the third Sunday of Easter. We've got one of the accounts of Saul's conversion in Acts. We've got a bit from Revelation 5. We've got the story of the disciples at the lakeshore in John 21. And what I want to know is, preacher to preacher, Sunday's coming. Where does Spirited Away show up in your sermon? So, man, I have a lot to talk about, and we've already begun to talk about how we might preach this uh, movie, but I also want to talk about the role of names and memory that shows up uh, so acutely in this movie. Spirited Away is, in many ways, an exploration of memory and its value. Uh, the the head witch, the labor boss, Zubaba, uh, she keeps people in servitude because people can't remember their names. Chihiro needs to remember her name so that she can leave, and so over and over. She's exhorted by Haku and others to remember her name. At the climax of the movie, it centers around Chihiro helping someone else remember his name. And knowing your name in this spirit world is not just a formality. It's an extension of personality. It is identity wrapped up in a single word. As I reflect on this, the Bible has a really complex picture of names and naming, Similarly, our Judeo-Christian traditions uh, struggle to understand how exactly a name shapes our persons. So Shakespeare will say things that, you know, a rose by any other name is still, smells still as sweet. What's in a name? And yet, there in the Talmud, there's this belief that an 11th hour name change might actually save you from death. Uh, that, Hmm. That your name uh, can be preventative medicine. Hmm. I read this uh, really wonderful article by a guy named Jody Rosen about his own name this week in Slate. Uh, we'll post a link to it on our website. And he makes this funny little point in the article 
that the name of God given to Moses at the burning bush is I am who I am, or I am that which I am, or I will be who I will be. But really, Rosen says that's God just not wanting to encompass the divine personality in any name. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of an out. Right. God is name weary. And so when you see Jesus speak to Peter on the seashore, he does something sly with Peter's name. Uh, he calls him by his original name. He says, Simon, son of John, uh, do you love me? So Jesus is messing around with Peter's name because I think he's in the process of altering Peter's identity. And in order to do that, he needs to mess with Peter's name. And I think the clue that he's altering his identity is that Jesus goes to meet Peter as Peter's doing the thing that he did prior to meeting Jesus. Peter and the disciples, they, they meet the resurrected Christ again in John's gospel. And then at some point, they don't really know what to do any longer. And so they revert to that which they've always done, which is fishing. And then Jesus shows up and they have this breakfast on the seashore. And then the, uh, the climactic moment in John, in many ways, Jesus says, not Peter, but Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, of course I love you. And then Jesus changes his identity. He says, feed my sheep. So suddenly, Peter, who's been doing all of this fishing, is asked to become a shepherd. And then, of course, Jesus says that very haunting line about, um, you know, the time was when you were young, you fastened your own belt. Sure. But um, now I'll, I'll fasten your belt and I'll lead you to the places that you'd rather not go. Right. Um, with this new identity shift, with this like messing around with names, um, comes a new mission. And an invitation to finally become Peter, the rock, you know, the one upon whom I'll build the church, a new shepherd in the vein of Christ. And so as I thought about Miyazaki and his complex vision of names, he is playing around with this idea that your title, what you do, your mission, like what you are trying to accomplish in the world and your name, who you are, form this complex picture of your own identity. And uh, the loss of any of these things will lead to some vision of servitude. Yeah, and I think about that in the connection with memory too. I mean, Shihiro has to remember her name, but the way that she remembers her name is by keeping the farewell card from her right. friend that has her name written on it. Uh, and, you know, Haku has to get his name back, but the way that he gets that name back is for her to remember that he was this river that has been lost. I mean, there's a kind of, there's still this kind of mourning and sadness. I know I'm kind of a broken record <laughs> on this, but it, to the degree that that speaks to the scripture too, that again, the disciples are kind of mourning this, this person that has been lost and taken from them and to be able to fully move on with who they are now going to become. They have to be able to remember who they right. were. Right, and they're too. not that good at it. I mean, they seem sort of rudderless. They they fish all night and can't can't catch yeah. anything until yeah, Jesus yeah. comes along and sort of helps them with some miracle. Right. I wonder if in some ways that's that's an opportunity for Jesus to say, like, look, guys, come on. You're, you're not that good at it. 
you need to stop doing it and and come and I'll give you I'll give you a new identity. And remember, you weren't that good at it to begin with. And then we had all of these amazing experiences. So let me reiterate what you already know. In some ways, it reminds me a little bit of the scripture that I want to talk about, which is Paul's conversion in Acts 9. Right. Yeah, go for because it. Because Paul has this conversion on the road to Damascus, and immediately he's paralyzed and doesn't know what to do. I mean, he uh, he's goes into a almost a catatonic state, and it's days in, uh, in bed before Ananias comes and kind of gets him out of it. And I... And I was thinking about that conversion moment with Spirited Away already because I there's some interesting quote unquote conversions in this film. Right. And I, you know, certainly not with Judeo Christian baggage on that term, but transformations transformations to be sure. Jihiro has a remarkable ability to see underneath the out, outer surface of people and bring that underneath out. And my favorite sequence in the film entirely is the sequence of the river spirit that you referenced in the opening of the show. The, the river spirit comes into the bathhouse as this giant, stinky spirit. I mean, it looks like the inside of Oscar the Grouch's trash can on steroids. And everybody runs away because nobody wants anything to do with giving a bath to the giant, stinky trash heap of a spirit. But Chihiro kind of sees the inside or there's some sense of fairness or honor with her that is like he's a paying customer we're going to give him a bath so she gets into the bath with this giant stink spirit and what does she find i mean in in the like weirdest moment of judeo-christian rhetoric here she finds a thorn in his side (laughs) which you know is is the definition of pauline it's right from second corinthians the thorn given me in the flesh and the the way that this transformation gets played out then is that Chihiro has to tie a rope around a thorn and the whole community has to get there in the bathhouse and play tug of war to get the thorn out of the side of the stink spirit, who then is revealed to be this beautiful river spirit who can go off on about his And there's that like incredibly satisfying moment when they finally pull it out and all of this other stuff follows it, right? Like Right, all this junk and stuff and yeah. And I I think it's interesting to use that as a reflection on Paul's conversion, though, because we tend to treat Paul's conversion as an individualistic experience of God and grace. He's on the road. Jesus shows up. Paul gets knocked down. He wakes up. Saul gets knocked down. He wakes up. He's Paul. And he changes the world forever, right? But it doesn't work like that. Paul gets knocked down, and he doesn't know what to do with it. Ananias has to help him out, which is to say that even Paul's conversion, which is this such a paradigmatic individualistic story, doesn't work without the community there to help him interpret the experience of grace that he has. And I picture the community in this bathhouse working to pull this thorn out from the side of the river spirit. It seems to me that there's a kind of paradigm for baptism there, quite apart from the fact that you're washing this giant river spirit with water. But you know, that's kind of how it works for us. God provides the water, but the community has to be the one that pulls out the thorns from the folks that come to us, from our own selves. You know, it's not enough to baptize the kid if you won't also teach a Sunday school class. It's not enough to welcome a member to church if you won't also invite him to dinner. The community has to do this work of grace together. And I, I love just that moment in the film of seeing this bathhouse that has been so inhospitable to Chihiro previously 
kind of rally for the sake of this one mysterious stranger. Anyway, right. That's no, what I, I love got. it because, and I like that you you pull in the baptism piece in part because it seems that Miyazaki is also making environmental point here too you know oh, like yeah. he has no doubt that the role of memory is not just remembering who you are but remembering the world that which you from which you come and uh and it's a good reminder to us that you know it's not enough for you to baptize you have to actually you know god has given you waters for baptism if you pollute them well we have to clean them right like yeah. the and I think Miyazaki is making that point too, which is it's going to take everyone to rally together in order to do this stuff, in order to save a planet that's dying, in order to sustain a community that wants to tear itself apart. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of environmental and earth care stuff in this film. Yeah, we barely we have not touched even... it. But I, I like that that something like baptism, which is so central to our vision, um, has has largely divorced itself from the fact that this is like water coming from somewhere. We just get ours bottled at the store. We pour it in right, the font. Right, right, right. We pour right? it in the font, right? Yeah. And that's the thing is in most of our churches, if stinky water came out of our faucet, our initial uh, move wouldn't be, all right, everyone, in order for us to baptize people, we're going to have to fix this water. We would never say that. Because we've had so many conversations in churches about the source materials for communion. Right. You know, and, and the, the movement towards gluten-free bread options and the kind of like dietary restrictive communion options. And that's a very material sacrament. And it's, we've had a lot of theologically inflected conversations about the materials, but we never have this conversation about the material of baptism. I, I, I think we should. I like it. Yeah. On board. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had this material with in a class that I was teaching, an introductory worship class, where... They all want to talk about, you know, what happens when you bring home special water uh, from the Jordan River to baptize this child or and um, and, you know, my reformed heritage comes out in this moment when I say um, I say, no, I don't. I will not baptize you with your special <laughs> Jordan River water. Um, I think it um, it gets in the way of um us realizing that it is, it is the mundane things of life that are made extraordinary by the grace of God. That said, because things are mundane, we often overlook them. And by doing so, um, they get polluted and they break. And we, um, because we think that they're ubiquitous, uh, we think we don't have to care for them. Which, again, like bringing back to to my broken record which is like at some point like self-control becomes a major part of this which is just because it's abundant doesn't mean we can use it up but it also means that we can't ignore it either so matt sunday has come we preached it miyazaki was the 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 little teacher on our shoulder as we move on to our third segment of the uh show our postludes tell me what is it that uh is banging around in your head right now what small thought do you have um that might be helpful for me as i do ministry or as i think about preaching so i've been following this big debate in hollywood right now over the future of movie theaters 
this is this debate. I mean, Hollywood's been having a debate about the future of movie theaters for as long as there have been movie <laughs> right, theaters. Right. But the, the 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 latest sally in it is the this company called Screening Room that's actually launched by um, uh, Sean Parker, the old Napster guy, uh, who wants to rent customers day of new releases for fifty bucks a piece plus some fee for having the equipment in your home in the first place, a couple of hundred bucks, something like that. And he's his pitch is he's going to cut theaters in on the dollars that come in from that so that they don't have to fall by the wayside. And, you know, okay, this is really controversial. And like Jim Cameron is up in the press railing against it. And I'm, I'm sure that a bunch of others are too, especially the guy, the kind of big spectacle theater guys. Ticket prices are way up. Attendance is way down. We've been down this road before. And every time Hollywood panics about attendance at its theaters, it goes for bells and whistles. Right. So, you know, it goes for Panavision, it goes for 70 millimeter, it goes for color and sound. I mean, this goes way back. It goes for 3D, it goes for luxury seating and premium food and all the fanciest bar. Which, by the way, I, I, I went to like the new luxury yeah. seating where they like give you drinks right. uh, for, to watch Star Wars. Did you go to Star Wars on opening night? Like two days later, yeah. Yeah, I went like two days later packed. too because, yeah. you know, I've got a kid and I can't get out immediately. But it was still packed. And part of the point of going that soon, right, it, I wasn't so worried about finding spoilers on the internet. But I wanted to see it with a crowd. Right? Like the whole point of being in that moment is to be in that moment communally. Uh, I went to see uh, Tarantino's latest, Hateful Eight, in this big, like, the 70 millimeter roadshow that was the big spectacle when it came through DC, I drove up and you know, the film was beautiful and seeing it on 70 millimeter was beautiful. But the best part about seeing that show was the people that had shown up for that thing. And we had our little community of folks who were there in the theater. And I, my thing here is that this is a pretty decent metaphor for church, right? It's not a, not a perfect one, but when we get anxious about church attendance, our default position is to go to the bells and whistles that if we could do 70 millimeter church in um, 3D with luxury seating and smell-o-vision, that we totally would if people would show up. And a lot of churches pull that off. But I, I guess my conviction, and maybe this is why I'm still in a mainline denomination, but part of my conviction is that at the end of the day, people come to church for people in relationships. And you want to go and see what happens with your friends and the folks that you love. And so that's that's what's bouncing around in my head. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I think it, I think it's a, better than a pretty good metaphor. I think it's a really good metaphor. Um, when when a theater's packed and there's buzz, there's right. nothing like it. Right. And I mean, well, there are things like it, but not at the cost. You know, not for ten dollars. No, absolutely. Like you have to pay lots of money to go to a sporting event where you can find that type of buzz, or you know, something like Broadway, which was initially a populist medium is um now costs three hundred dollars to 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 get a ticket right. to anything and um and that's what makes me sad whenever i was in that luxury theater which was i th i was confident that the poor were gonna rise up and like come and burn that place down because we had betrayed the medium which is this is a, a medium for for people to experience together um and I remember, I mean, some of the most important movie-going experiences of my life. Batman in, um, you know, the the first original Tim Burton Batman. I watched in a packed theater. The right. biggest West Coast theater. Um, it holds about 1,200 to 1,500 people. Wow. And it was full. 
Yeah. And it shook. And it was amazing. Yeah. And it gave you the power. It gave you the sense of the power of this medium, not just in its ability to tell stories, but in its ability to gather people to listen right. to those stories. Right. And that's anxiety about that. That's part of kind of conservative anxiety about movie going that's gone back to the very beginning was that in the early decades of the 20th century, movie palaces were threatening because they were a place where the masses could gather. They were a place where single women could go unaccompanied. They, they were a place where all kinds of rabble, you especially, I could know. stir up all kinds of trouble. Ugh. And you know, and I, I feel like that is... The, to deny that and to set up a theater that tries to deny that is, is to deny some of the very essence of what makes this thing alive. And I, so anyway... I love that's it. My, that's my speech. What about you, Adam? So um, in the interest of talking about memory and thinking about... Uh, spirited away in Miyazaki and his his interest in memory. I've been thinking a lot about uh, churches as places that record memories, uh, specifically names. Uh, I grew up in California. We have uh, churches. They're just not very old. And so uh, Californians don't tend to commemorate things. And yet, when I got out here, I was really astounded by the presence of so many names that adorn all of these churches. Um, you know, uh, this pew given by this, this alcove given by this family, a lot of the stained glass in the church that I attend now is given by a family or is given in commemoration of somebody. Um, and so this is, this has been, uh, something that I've been really interested in as I've been living in new England. And then I went into a uh, memorial church, which is Harvard's, uh, chapel. And it's a memorial church in the sense that it was built to commemorate um, Harvard students who were killed in wars. And on one side of the church is a large wall with somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 to 250 names. And it takes up the entire mm. wall. Um, wow. One wall of, not to mention the rest of the church has names everywhere. Everything is commemorated in this church. Sure. But this wall is so staggering. And it, um, and it has the names and the school that they had gone to in Harvard. So the undergraduate students, but then like the business school and the medical school and the law school. Uh, and the divinity school has two names. Um, one was a, uh, the name of someone who was a, uh, a chaplain in the Pacific. And the second name is Adolf Sandvald. And next to Adolf Sandvold's name is uh, a parenthetical statement, enemy casualty. Wow. It's the only parenthetical statement on the wall, though there were other people in the Pacific, um, and especially some Japanese students who had attended Harvard and were killed in, um, in World War II, but their names aren't mentioned. But Sandvold is uh, an interesting story of someone who is commemorated on this wall as having gone to the divinity school. He returned to Tübingen, uh, received a doctorate and, um, was a parish priest for, um, for a long time before he was, uh, conscripted into the German army. Uh, he belonged to part of the confessing church movement, um, and spoke out against, uh, the, the national socialist party and against uh, the Nazi forces that were controlling Germany at the time. 
And the story, it seems, though it's being lost to history with each passing day, is um, that he was outspoken in his critique of Hitler and of Nazism. And instead of making him a chaplain, they um, they made him an infantryman and they sent him to the Russian front. Uh, and over time, enough time in the cold winter in Russia, uh, he was killed and then buried in a mass grave there. When Harvard put his name up there for the in 1951, uh, there was a huge outcry from both the students and from Boston and Cambridge in general. Uh, but Harvard stuck to their guns and kept his name there, and it's still there. All this to say is that I'm now fascinated by these names and what stories might be behind them. And so my pitch is if you have names in your church that you have never looked up and you have no idea who they are or what they did or what they gave, I want to encourage you to try and figure it out. Do some research. If you've got church archives that you can look through, I think these ghosts, these clouds of witnesses um, are still with us. And these names are vestiges of that. And I think if we could tell those stories, it would be a powerful reminder about the stream of tradition in which we stand. And, um, and it might inspire us and empower us to, um, to take up the mantle of these people who, um, who are our forebears. So that's my postlude for today. Well, that's beautiful, Adam. Thank you so much. That does about wrap it up for this episode of Technicolor Jesus, but we are not quite done yet. I got to pick Spirited Away this week, and now it's Adam's turn. Adam, next week it'll be Easter 4. We've got more from Acts, Revelation, and John's Gospel. So what are we going to do? What are you going to make me watch? So I had intended to look at these lectionary passages and thought and think about what movie might be perfect to them. And then after a while... Um, as nothing came to me, I started to think, what movie do I want to watch next week? And so I think um, what I want us to do is uh, is take a take a shift away from um, movies about uh, aliens and ghosts uh, <laughs> and move into uh, amateur theater. And so I want us to watch Waiting for Guffman, Christopher Guest's uh, yeah. movie uh, about an amateur theater group who is trying to put on a show that they hope will be picked up uh, by uh, a Broadway producer. I, I think it's the best of Christopher Guest's movies, and, uh, and, I, and I hope it spurs a, a conversation about what it means to, um, to want, to hope, to wait, and maybe what it means um, to try and improv our way, uh, you know, through this life. So waiting for Guffman. I'm excited for that conversation. I am not willing to agree that it's the best of his <laughs> films because Best in Show is just perfect. But I'm looking forward to, visit, to revisiting it again. All right. So thanks for listening, everybody. 
And don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review. We also have a website that you can come to if you want more information about the show, technicolorjesus.com. Send us a message on Facebook or uh, a message on Twitter, and we'll get back to you. Thanks for listening. And Matt, good to be with you. Good to be with you, Adam. See you next time. See ya. See ya.